Welcome. Thanks for tuning in to Grand Rounds, Connecticut Children's Office of Continuing Medical Education Pediatric Podcast. This podcast series will assist in developing new skill sets based on recent pediatric advances in a wide variety of specialties, identifying evidence-based data to support improved outcomes in pediatric healthcare delivery, increasing knowledge about research with implications for clinical practice. And now, here's Grand Rounds. Morning, everyone, and welcome to Grand Rounds. I hope everyone is doing well and enjoying a little bit of coffee, a little bit cold this morning with with some uh, uh, snowy weather. So I I hope everyone is uh, staying warm. It is the deeper winter right now, after all. And uh, today we have really just an amazing individual coming in to give Grand Rounds. And it's really part of our what I call our new muscle, our, our new strength uh, within the Connecticut Children's Health System, and uh, and and one that I've, I've learned a lot from, and and we will continue to learn as we make the decisions, and certainly how we make decisions in in healthcare. I think we, in you know, in the past, uh, uh, all of us who are clinicians uh, always relied on our gut instinct. You know, this is what may happen, this is what could happen, this is what should happen. But if we learn anything in the COVID-19 era is that we actually need numbers. We need analytics. We need to understand how things are changing. And there's a science to doing that correctly. Uh, not always perfect, but it's certainly uh, something that we're getting better at. And, and we have uh, garnered that science here at Connecticut Children's in the Department of Pediatrics. And, and today's uh, presenter is somebody who, uh, uh, so, who I know well who is really uh, an amazing individual, a member of the Department of Pediatrics, and, and brings uh, uh, engineering and systems approaches to what we do in a, in a way that we haven't done before. Uh, so Dr. Z Jam is uh, an assistant professor of pediatrics here in the, the Yukon School of Medicine, and uh, uh, also uh, he is the senior director for health systems analytics and modeling for Connecticut Children's. Dr. Lori Pelletier, head of the division, uh, brought him in in April of 21. We started interviewing Z before that, and it was just remarkable uh, trying to understand, you know, how things uh, happen and how he understands the way healthcare moves and and uh, and changes. Uh, Z brings uh, a lot of strength. He uh, he his uh, training was at Purdue University in West Lafayette, Indiana, uh, where uh, he uh, received a bachelor's in industrial engineering, graduated with distinction and honors, um, and also had a minor in management. Then he also received a master's degree in industrial engineering. Uh, and that was followed by his PhD in industrial engineering, uh, which obviously gave him a, a tremendous amount of strength. As, as a senior director of health systems analytics, just to give you a sense of what he does, is he develops analytics strategy for Connecticut children to advance in analytics maturity uh, while aligning with the overall system strategies. Uh, supervise uh, our teams, which is growing, of analytics staff to deliver analytic services that meet business needs. And um, also uh, in functional areas such as quality and safety, which is a major focus of, of, of Z, uh, in operations and strategy and human resources and diversity, equi- equity and inclusion, and also population health. And he's helping us build our science capabilities through introduction of contemporary methods such as machine learning, uh, c- computer simulation to optimize decision making for key initiatives. And he's a partner in everything that we do. Through the COVID era, he has been formidable. So Dr. Shriver and I and Dr. Michael and infectious disease, we, we connect with Z frequently. Uh, we give him uh, some of our view of where things are going, but then he actually gets the numbers and gives us a, a response that is based on metrics. Uh, so with, with his strength, we, we can change the way we think, the way we do, the way we approach uh, you know, anything related to patient safety, patient quality decision-making. Uh, so it's really exciting to to have him. Um, the title of his grand rounds is Applications of Analytical Approaches for Healthcare Decision Making. And I can't wait to listen to his presentation. It's a different language. I hope you learn. And uh, certainly, uh, Z will be will make himself available if you have questions for him after grand rounds. So, uh, Z, uh, thank you for joining us. Uh, go ahead. The podium is yours. Right. Thank you so much, Juan, for the uh, very generous introduction. And thank you for everybody um, being here this morning. Um, to listen to my talk. As Juan mentioned, um, today I would like to share with you a few topics in the application of analytical approaches for um, healthcare decision making. So there are, oops, next slide. So there are a few um, objectives that I would like to accomplish for today's talk. And the first one is that I would like to share with you um, an overview of various types of analytics. And we'll talk through some examples of 
some analytics approaches that um, were used in Connecticut Children's, as well as some examples from other healthcare institutions. And I'll also talk a little bit about the implications of such approaches. So first of all, as we all know, analytics is such a broad word that um, does not have a standard definition. So it depends on who you ask, you might get you know, a bunch of different definitions of what people think analytics means. So I decided that I would just look to Google and see how do other people define this. So I found this definition um, by the National Institute of Science and Technology, and they say that analytics is discovery of meaningful patterns in data, and it's one of the steps in the life cycle of collection of raw data, preparation of information, analysis of patterns to synthesize knowledge and action to pro produce value. Obviously, this is a very long sentence with a lot of elements packed into one sentence. So I would like to unpack this a little bit by looking at analytics slightly differently. Um, and this is how I look at it. So the way I see it is that analytics um, can be divide, divided broadly into these four categories. And we see a graph here, the x-axis is um, the complexity of the methods, and then the y-axis is the value that the different types of analytics can bring to an organization. These values could be business values, could be clinical values, could be whatever value it is that um, our use case um, is looking at. So the first phase is what we call descriptive analytics followed by the second phase of diagnostic analytics, and then there's predictive analytics and prescriptive analytics. So let's take a look at each of these phases um, in a little more detail. So the first phase of descriptive um, analytics basically tries to answer the question of what happened. It is typically considered the simplest form of analytics, and when we want to do descriptive analysis, we would typically go um, and extract some historical data of certain past events, apply some basic mathematics or statistics, and utilize some simple visualizations in order to get the point across. So in general, the descriptive analytics can and really should be understood by a wide audience, especially if we're talking about a healthcare institution where um, we many of us have some exposure to basic descriptive analytics. An example of the kind of question that descriptive analytics can help answer would be something like, how many harm events happened in the last year? So of course, in order to answer a question like that, again, we go to the historical data, we do basic counts, which is a form of statistic, and that's the answer to the question. So moving on to the next phase of uh, diagnostic analytics, this is a type of analytics that tries to um, uh, answer the question of why did it happen? Why did something happen? So this is the phase where we use data to determine whether is there any trends or correlations, any causes to certain things. Um, we apply data mining techniques. We use data discovery tools to look for, again, any kind of patterns or trends in the data. And we also look at whether something, um, some variables have correlations with each other versus causation. Typically, it's correlation because in order to find causation, there needs to be some other um, efforts that need to happen as well. Um, so I do want to stress that correlations and causation are two different things. Um, even though we still hear people using these two terms interchangeably, they really are not the same thing. Um, and one example question that diagnostic analytics could help answer would be something like, was the staffing shortage associated with higher prevalence of harm events? And this question is a very correlation kind of question. Um, and it's the kind of question that we see a lot in healthcare, whether it's um, looking at diseases or operations and so on. The next phase is um, predictive analytics that tries to answer the question of what is likely to happen. So this is really a big step um, up from diagnostic analytics in the sense that in order to do predictive analytics, we need different skill sets, we need to set up our data capture system, data storage system differently, and so on and so forth. So a lot more resources and setup need to happen before we're able to do predictive analytics um, efficiently. So in this phase, we try to identify the likelihood or probability of certain outcomes happening. It doesn't tell us what is the best approach to take in order to accomplish a certain outcome, but it does provide us the increase, uh, it does increase the chance of us taking the best course of action in order to accomplish certain outcome. Um, it's also in this phase that we start applying some advanced techniques, such as regression and machine learning, artificial intelligence, um, just to name a few. 
So an example question here is, what is the likelihood, again, probability of a certain patient suffering from, let's say, heart failure in five years? So that's a very predictive analytics kind of question. The next phase, which is also the final phase of analytics, is what we call prescriptive analytics. Um, and it answers the question of what should be done. Recall that when I was talking about predictive analytics previously, I said that predictive analytics doesn't really tell us what is the best action to take. Well, in this case, prescriptive analytics tries to give us that kind of insight. So we use data in this phase to determine the best or optimal action. And this is also the most complex and advanced type of analytics. Again, utilizing techniques in machine learning, artificial intelligence, but also other techniques like uh, computer simulation, mathematical optimization, and also um, expert knowledge. All these are systems or algorithms that need to be built on expert knowledge. Um, in, in this case, I also want to stress that the quality of the model output is highly dependent on input data. And this applies to prescriptive analytics as well, but it's more so um, the stake is a lot higher in this case for prescriptive analytics. And that's a phrase that we use. We say garbage in, garbage out. And that is definitely something that applies here. And an example question that prescriptive analytics um, tries to help us answer would be, should I perform intervention one or intervention two? given a certain patient symptoms, demographics, past medical conditions, and so on. So there are algorithms out there that will take into account all these different variables about, let's say, a patient, um, formulate a model, um, and then run different types of simulation and different calculation through many different scenarios, and then come up with the best um, action or the optimal action in order to accomplish whatever outcome that we are looking for. So this is what prescriptive analytics um, help us do. So now that I've gone through the four broad categories of um, analytics, so where do we stand as a system? Where are we in this journey? So we are here-ish. And the reason I say here-ish is because as a system, Connecticut Children's has done a very good job um, in terms of building the skill sets and also infrastructure to do descriptive uh, analysis and diagnostic analysis. We have the system builds, we have the skills, and we, we, have, we have done a lot of reporting, we have the um, analytics resource center set up and so on and so forth. But if we think about it, descriptive analytics and diagnostic analytics are really hindsight analytics and also monitoring of current state type of analytics. We are, at a, as a system, been dabbling in the next two phases, which are predictive and prescriptive analytics. I know that there are activities going on in my own department in quality and safety uh, transformation. There are activities going on in this area in the research institute. There are some activities in the information solutions uh, department and so on. However, as a system, we don't have a coordinated systematic approach to get us there. We recently um, have been developing an analytics uh, strategy, which was presented to the EMT team last week on how we are, trying, we, we are going to get there. Um, so uh, there are some exciting times ahead, but current states, we are somewhere between diagnostic and predictive analytics as a system. So now what do we need to do exactly in order for us to get to the future of analytics? So the, the first thing that we need to recognize is that um, analytics is a very multidisciplinary effort. So there's no one person or one role that can take us there. It really needs to be, um, and it really takes a village with many different types of uh, skill sets and backgrounds. So first of all, we need to understand what are the stages of going through the analytics journey. So first of all, we have this, the first stage of capturing data. Within the stage of capturing data, there are multiple activities such as could be manual entry or using electronic system like Epic or web scraping where we literally write some sort of algorithm, send it to the internet and that algorithm will mine um, data on, on the internet. For example, Twitter data, Facebook data on what our patients feel and say about the system and that sort of thing. And there are some technologies and tools to do that. For example, RedCap, Excel, um, some sort of API, which stands for application programming interface and so on. These are just some examples. There are plenty of other um, technologies, tools, methods out there. And once that phase is done, we go into the second phase of preparing and maintaining the data, which includes putting the raw data into consistent format, cleansing the data, writing some ETL um, uh, algorithm or scripts. And there are some, the technologies involved are things like SQL, 
um, data warehouse, data marts, the ERP system, and so on. The next phase is processing or pre-process, pre-processing these data where we examine for biases, look for any kind of patterns in the data, um, any kind of distributions in the data, and so on. And again, there are software packages out there, uh, for example, SAS, R, SPSS, Excel, that do this really well. The next phase, analyze, is what people typically think about where when analytics happen, but analytics really cover the entire spectrum. But within this phase of analyzing, this is where statistical analysis um, is being done, predict prediction is being made, machine learning models are built, optimization algorithms are constructed, AI applications are used, and so on and so forth. And again, <clears throat> the software packages like SAS, R, SPSS, Excel, <clears throat> and so on, have a lot of these built-in functions already that can be used in order to do these type of analysis. Um, the, the, some of the tools that involve our methods include things like regression, random forest, um, we hear about neural networks, sometimes mathematical programming, computer simulation, and so on. And after we're done with analyzing the data, of course, we want to be able to communicate the data to our audience. And this is the phase where data visualization comes in, some sort of reporting. And again, there are tools like Tableau, Click, Excel, R, and so on. There are many more others out there on the market. Now, because this entire life cycle consists of many different elements that could be uh, extremely complicated. There are multiple types of skill sets that are needed to do this really well. So these skills include um, computer science, statistics, um, math, engineering, technology, as well as cognitive science. So as we can see here, this process um, could be a very lengthy process and definitely takes a multidisciplinary approach to do that. So we can't talk about analytics approaches without demystifying a few words. So I do want to throw out this slide and talk a little bit about what these things are. So we hear a lot about you know, uh, buzzwords in, for example, artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive modeling, simulation optimization. So what are they and how are they similar and how are they different? So again, unfortunately, these are terms that don't have standard definition. So it's one of those things that, again, depending on who you ask, you probably will get different answers. But based on what I've seen, uh, I agree with the way IBM defines these things. So I'm just shamelessly stealing their definition here. So the way IBM uh, defines it is that um, artificial intelligence, the science uh, and engineering of making intelligent machines using computers to understand humans and so on. And then the way they define machine learning is the use of data and algorithms to imitate the way humans learn. And the definition here is also that machine learning is a subset of artificial intelligence, which I also agree with. Um, there are some definitions out there that say that machine learning is separate from AI, some definitions that say machine learning is completely overlapping with AI and so on. So there are, again, many different perspectives out there. But personally, I do think that machine learning is a subset of AI. The next overlapping um, area is predictive, predictive analytics, which is a branch of analytics that makes predictions about some future outcomes using different types of methods. And then last but not least, there's the optimization or simulation optimization um, area of analytics. And this is really the mathematical uh, modeling of a situation. IBM calls it a business situation, but again, it doesn't have to be business. It could be clinical, it could be something else um, in order for us to make better decisions um, through the translation of key characteristics of the problems that we're trying to solve. So, with that, I want to move into some examples of how uh, we utilize analytics uh, here at Connecticut Children's. So I wanted to use this example that um, is still relevant for us, which is um, what are we doing in terms of bed capacity optimization for this winter that we're going through currently. So the background here is that as many of us know, um, we experience an increase in patient volumes, both in the emergency departments and inpatients um, in the last year. So um, towards the end of summer, beginning of fall last year, there was a need to predict what is going to be the winter volume this, uh, this winter in order for us to optimize our capacity and beds um, for, for our patients. So, we started with the ED volume prediction where, again, going through the, the phases of analytics, we started with descriptive analytics, we extracted historical data, we did some uh, hindsight analysis, and then we came up with 
with this visualization. So what we're seeing here is really a, a graph that shows the ED uh, monthly census. And there are some observations here that we could make. So the first observation uh, is very obvious. It is the dip in the monthly census in the ED for the first one and a half, two years of COVID. So this comes as a no surprise, we all know this. But then there are also some other observations. First observation is that all the data points are ordered in time where time is the, that independent variable. But the next observation is that there's what we call autocorrelation among sets of values. For example, January of one year versus January of another year or May of one year versus May of another year look somewhat similar with each other. So there's that autocorrelation. There's also what we call repeated periodic fluctuations, which basically is seasonality effects in, in, in these, um, these numbers. And then there's another property that we saw, which is what we call stationarity, which means that the mean and variance are somewhat constant, obviously, except for 2020, I should say, and 2021 as well. So, so there, but there are some general observations that we could tell from the historical data. And because of these observations, we decided that a time series forecasting or prediction approach is what um, is the right approach to use here for to make that prediction. But within time series itself, there are potential different sub-methods as well. For example, one could be a moving average, which I think most, if not all of us here might be familiar with, and that's the simplest method to use. There's also what we call exponential smoothing, which means assigning decreasing weights to past observations, meaning last year's um, data will carry more weights to predict this year's volume compared to data from two years ago, and compared to data from three years ago and so on and so forth. There's also another uh, method called double exponential smoothing that accounts for any trends in the time series. And then there's triple exponential smoothing that accounts for seasonality in the time series. So as I mentioned earlier, we saw other correlation, we saw seasonality, we saw uh, stationarity. So that means that the method that we should be using is the triple exponential smoothing um, of the time series forecast. And this is basically the formulation for that. I'm not gonna go through all of these, but basically this formulation takes into account all the things that I said before. There was the smoothing factor um, alpha that determines how fast the weights decreases for past observation. There's the beta in terms of smoothing the trend and then gamma for seasonality smoothing and so on. So we um, plug a bunch of numbers in here, solve, solve this model. And this is what, like, what we got. So the blue line here is the actual ED census and the red line is the prediction. So again, some observations here. The first observation, and by the way, we got this done around uh, end of, uh, I believe, August and beginning of September of last year. And this is what we are seeing. So the first thing is that um, we removed the two years of COVID because nothing in those two years were normal. So we didn't want to use all those disruptions as the basis of prediction. So we removed that and we just used um, a few years before that and also half a year after that as the base for the prediction. So the next thing that we predicted um, based on this is this increasing trend in terms of ED census that started in around September up till December. And again, we, we finished this around the beginning of September. And this trend actually uh, came true as if we are, you know, for those of us who follow hospital census and so on, we know that our hospital actually did experience this. The next trend that we predicted was sort of a dip in volume around January of this year, which is exactly what our, our organization is facing right now as well. That's the little dip, still high volume, but a little dip compared to what we experienced the last few months. Now, what we don't know is this spike right here. So this model is pretty much is predicting that in um, end of February, beginning of March, around that area, we're going to see a spike in ED census. Um, and of course, we're not there yet. We don't know. So as somebody who is in predictive analytics, part of me feels that it would be really cool if this model was right. Um, but the other part of me feels that, you know, maybe I don't want to see this being right just because our system will be hit by another wave of patients that we may not have the capacity for. But what the outcome is going to be, I guess at this point, um, time will tell. But um, this is an example of how we use predictions um, for uh, to, to inform the um, hospital decision making. But 
this is just the emergency departments. I want to share another example for the inpatient side of things. So again, the objective, objective is exactly the same as the emergency department one that we want to predict the volume, we want to predict what is the optimal capacity. And in this case, we're looking at uh, med surge, uh, floor 678, as well as for PQ. So for this work, we approach this slightly differently um, than the emergency department example because of a different use case. So what we started here is again, looking at descriptive statistics, grabbing historical data and analyzing historical data to start. So what we're seeing here is um, discharges uh, for MS 6, 7, and 8. And if we see the first observation here is that there's a huge dip in this orange line that stands for the discharges for FY20. Again, this is um, because of COVID and we all, it, this, is, this comes as a no surprise. What we are seeing, uh, interesting trend here is that the FY22 volumes actually approach the pre-COVID volumes. So if we look at this yellow line that represents the FY22 volume, um, it's yellow on my screen. I hope it's yellow on your screen as well. And we compare this yellow line with the light blue line. We see that the yellow line and the light blue line become very close with each other. So that you know, visually tells us that FY22 volumes are very similar to FY19 volume. Um, when this analysis was performed. So this is just looking at discharge volume. What we wanted to also know is what about length of stay or in this case, patient days. And again, we saw that the FY22 patient days exceeded the pre-COVID patient days, again, by comparing the, the values um, represented by the uh, yellow line and the light blue line. So the yellow line becomes a lot higher than the light blue line towards the end of this data set. So because of this observation, we were wondering, does acuity have anything to do with this? So then we con conducted the third um, uh, analysis looking at acuity by uh, the CMI, the case mix index measure. Interestingly enough, we did not find any clear trends of CMI changes. Again, if we compare the yellow line with the blue line, we see that there are certain months where the blue line was um, higher than the yellow line, and then certain months where the yellow line was higher than the blue line, but towards the end of the data set, those two lines sort of converge. So there's really no clear trends of CMI changes, but one could also argue that CMI is not a metric that was constructed um, that could capture acuity correctly to begin with, which also makes sense. Um, but going with this metric, um, there's no clear trend. So here are some of the observations that um, pretty much I mentioned, the uh, FY22 volumes almost back to pre-COVID, um, there were some fluctuations in volumes and those fluctuations were very similar to FY19. And the patient days in FY22 are higher than pre-COVID, similar to FY21. And we calculated correlation, remember the diagnostic phase of analytics I was talking about. So we calculated the correlation and we found that there was actually negligible um, correlation between patient days and CMI. And then we also went ahead and, and calculated a p-value um, looking at the entire distributions of CMI across FY22 and FY21. And then there's no statistical significant difference in the acuity again, defined by CMI. So how do we use that? So the way <clears throat> we are approaching capacity optimization here is a little different with ED because as we talk about um, capacity optimization in the inpatient unit, we really need to take into consideration patient flow and length of stay um, in our system. As a result, we decided to go with this kind of modeling approach called discrete event simulation. And here we're moving up the, the, that scale into prescriptive analytics. So discrete event simulation is a type of modeling tool that helps us model the operation of a system as a discrete sequence of events in time with each event described by a probability distribution. It could be time duration, likelihood of events, et cetera. So again, let's unpack this a little bit. So an example here could be a patient arrives, let's, let's just say in an emergency department, patients get registered, patient gets triaged, patient gets seen by a nurse, by a physician, and so on. So the triaging part is an event, being seen by a nurse is an event, being seen by a, a provider, a physician is an event. And every event is associated by some sort of probability distribution for time, for example. Um, in this case, my example is um, distribution one could be, could follow a wide distribution of a certain parameter value 
or some other uh, events could be described by a probability distribution of uh, log normal distribution of some parametric values and so on and so forth. So all those distributions are developed, captured and developed through historical data. And all these events are captured by um, expert uh, uh, knowledge and also providers experience. So we constructed a model like this. And of course, with these models, we need some, we need uh, input, data inputs into the model. So the type of data input that we use include things like, um, you know, the FY22 to, uh, we, we we assume that our winter volume will be similar to our FY19 volumes, pre-COVID volume based on those graphs that I showed earlier. And then we also assume that length of stay, however, will be more similar to last year's length of stay because of the potential increase in um, acuity. And then we have the number of beds in the system. We input that as a as an input um, number into the model. And then we also derive an arrival rate, or I should say several arrival rates based on the uh, hour of day distribution, day of the week distribution, and so on. So we're not just looking at a point estimate of an average number of patients coming to the system, but we're looking really looking at the distribution. We also derive distribution to describe our patient's length of stay through each patient's length of stay. So we're not making assumptions that say every patient will have an average length of stay of three days, for example. We're really looking at those distributions to capture the trends. And then we assume a room turnover of 30 minutes. Um, as I mentioned, we utilize this uh, modeling approach called discrete event simulation to make prediction on the capacity needs. We created seven different scenarios based on the number of overflow beds needed, starting from four to 16. Um, and then we studied the trade-offs between several variables, including the number of additional beds, the percent bed utilization, because intuitively we, we know the more beds we have, the less these beds are gonna be utilized. And also looking at boarding hours for admitted patients. We made some assumptions in the model, um, including things like, the current process inefficiencies are included in the model. Efforts to move patients um, in the front line um, uh, are not included, and also um, that behavioral health patients are embedded in, in the model so that our model can capture current state as, as um, accurately as possible. So we ran the model, we collected a bunch of data from the simulation model and to make the prediction, and then moving to the last phase of the analytics lifecycle where I mentioned about um, visualization earlier. So we turn all those numbers into this visualization. So again, there's a lot of information on here. So let's again, unpack this a little bit. So what we're seeing here is the prediction for a message, med search capacity. On the x-axis, um, each cluster of, of bars um, corresponds to the scenarios that we created. So the first scenario would be we have four overflow beds. The second scenario would be we have six overflow beds and so on. The primary x-axis, uh, primary y-axis on our left is the percent utilization. And then the um, secondary y-axis on the right is the predicted boarding time. So what we're seeing here is that the first bar is, which is the blue bar, is the predicted average utilization for all of our message beds together. The second bar, which is the orange bar, is the predicted maximum utilization um, for our current message beds. And then the third bar, which is the gray bar, is the predicted average utilization for the overflow beds. And then the fourth bar, which is the yellow bar, is the predicted um, maximum utilization for the overflow beds. And what we are seeing here, some observations, is that as we move from scenario one down the x-axis, um, we're seeing that the bars start to decrease starting at about eight overflow beds and then sort of taper off after we hit 12 overflow beds, meaning after we have 12 overflow beds, if we keep adding more beds, those additional beds aren't really making a dance in terms of lowering the, um, the average bed utilization. A similar trend is observed with these lines. So the blue line is the predicted boarding, uh, average boarding time, and then the purple line is the predicted maximum boarding time. And what we're seeing here is that this line uh, has a major decrease when we go from six overflow beds to eight overflow beds. And then once we hit 12 overflow beds, if we keep increasing the number of overflow beds, we are not getting much returns in terms of decreasing um, the, the boarding time. So this kind of uh, methods help us 
take something that we might think is intuitive, but put you know some uh, quantification to it to help with decision making. So how does it help us? Um, oh, so these are the observations that I just talked about. It's the same thing. So we did we use a similar approach for ED as well for PQ. Um, actually, it's a typo here. We didn't do it for NICU. So it's really for ED, PQ, and med surge. And we use these predictions for operational decision making. So how does that work? So first of all, in the very first um, purple uh, check here, we see that this predictive modeling part, and this is exactly what I just talked about, how we made those predictions about the, the volumes, the bed needs, and so on. And then these numbers were then used by a multidisciplinary team that um, uh, is led by Dr. Laurie Pelletier and Bob Duncan to do some decision analysis in terms of identifying additional beds in the system that can be utilized for the spikes in patient's volume. And those are then passed to the EPIC team to build and test and implement these changes into EPIC. Facilities team then takes the, um, this information to make sure that the rooms are outfitted into inpatient spaces and so on. Um, and in parallel, the regulatory team seek um, DPH approval for the use of these spaces. And then eventually equipment um, will be installed and, and, and so on and so forth. So this is an example of how these type of predictive methods are used and can and really should be used hand in hand with the organization. Um, we have seen many cases where a lot of these predictive uh, predictive, predictive models are being uh, developed, but sitting in somebody's computer or turning to a paper gets published and then nothing happens from it. But in reality, they really should be used um, to inform decision making this way. So that's an example um, of how we use methods like this. I want to share with, with you another example that several different types of analytics methods are used in the DE&I world. So this is actually a project, a research project that I did in my previous job in a previous hospital. Um, but I think it is applicable to many healthcare systems across the country. So I call this closing the gap in outcomes disparities one language at a time, because this work, we actually work with the um, interpreter services of this, this hospital um, to look at some of their staffing. So some background here is that there are 13 million individuals um, with limited English proficiency in the United States struggling to understand their healthcare providers. And we have seen a steadily increasing trend of the number of LEP individuals, and we expect this number to continue to rise. So um, it comes as no surprise that the LEP population is at high risk of poor quality healthcare, decreased satisfaction, increased adverse events and complications. Um, and we know there's plenty of literature out there that documents disparities in outcomes due to um, the lack of language interpreters. When we took on um, this research project, it, it was unclear to us about the gaps in terms of supply and demand for language services in this hospital. And there are really no guidelines in the literature about what is the optimal level of FTEs for language interpreters. So unlike nurse to patient ratio, where we know there's tons of guidelines out there, there's no guidelines for interpreters. There's also a lack of knowledge in terms of interpreter um, workflow, uh, value analysis of their activities. And we also know that the time duration of these activities um, is highly stochastic, meaning it's very random. So it's hard to plan around you know, a, a, a large magnitude of randomness. So in order for us to approach this, again, we started with um, descriptive analytics, uh, grab a bunch of data, we did some analysis, and then we realized that 83% of completed interpreter requests um, were for Spanish, and 3% for Mandarin, and 14% all others. And because there's a lack of study in terms of interpreter workflow and value analysis, we decided to do what we call a time and motion study. So in this time and motion study, we had two observers and manually observing about 70, uh, 47 hours of, of time. And because we had two different people doing the observation and documenting data and observation, we wanted to make sure that they both were interpreting the activities the same way, which is why we calculated an interrater reliability and we calculated um, this, uh, uh, this parameter called Cohen Kappa. And it's at 0.83, which means that, yeah, most of the time, these two observers were observing things the same way, So, which is good. So then we proceeded with our uh, descriptive statistics and realized that about 80% of the interpreter 
services were requested between the hours of 8 a.m. Uh, to 5 p.m., which again, this comes as no surprise, and this is just you know validation of what what we 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 thought. So then we utilize those uh, uh, numbers captured through the time motion study to do a value analysis. Basically, for the value analysis, we're looking at whether the non-value added time, whether and what's the non what's the value added time based on the activities. And we calculated that our interpreters at that time spent about 67% doing value added uh, activities. So then the question became, well, it, how, is that good or is that bad? How does that compare to other healthcare roles? So we look into literature and we found that um, ED physicians um, actually spent 56% of the time performing value added tasks, not saying that the physicians would purposely doing not uh, non-value at the task, but it was that they were under the constraint of the system and the way the system was set up. So, and also similarly, message nurses spent about 58% performing value at the task. So we thought, okay, the interpreters are actually doing pretty well in comparison. So we proceeded with the next few phases of the analysis. So we did what we call a spaghetti diagram. Basically, this is a snapshot of the travel patterns of the interpreters just to see where they go um, based on this campus map and also the, the data that we collected. Um, and then we constructed an optimization algorithm to optimize the FTEs and also the scheduling. So again, we went all the way to the, this, the end of the spectrum into prescriptive anal uh, uh, analytics here. So with the optimizing optimization of the FTEs, we were looking at minimizing the sum of the deviance of hourly supply from hourly demand given a set of constraints. For example, um, all full-time employees can only be assigned to one shift a day. All part-time employees can only be assigned to one shift a day and so on. We have a bunch of other constraints that I didn't put in here. But basically what this does is that upon solving this mathematical formulation, we got some theoretical numbers about what should be the optimal um, number of FTEs. And we utilized those numbers and put it into a schedule to make sure that these FTEs are able to meet the demand for their services throughout the day. So after we did that, we decided to construct a cost model. And this cost model um, encompasses a lot of different parameters, as we can see here, so that we can calculate the total cost of these um, FTEs. But uh, recall that I mentioned when we created the mathematical formulation, it gave us a theoretical number in terms of number of FTEs, but we know that in real life, nothing is theoretical. So there's a lot of randomness in the system. There are a lot of different um, probabilities associated with different things and so on. So what we then decided to do is to construct, again, the discrete event simulation model to introduce some of those probabilities, those time distribution of different activities. And the input to that model um, includes uh, uh, elements like the workflow, um, time duration that I mentioned, the way demand arrived into the system, the distribution of languages, the FTEs, the schedule, and so on. Plug that into the model, run the model, and then take the model output and put that through our cost model that I talked about before. So Again, after all these analysis, we converted the predicted numbers into um, a visualization. So this is basically, this is the visualization for the Spanish interpreter FTEs. So if we just look at the blue line, which is the total cost, when we started this study, the system had, um, I believe 6.8 Spanish interpreter FTEs at almost uh, uh, $1.9 million. And what we realized was that that was not only uh, was causing disparities in the outcomes because of the lack of Spanish interpreters, it's also not cost optimal. And what we were predicting at that time was that we could technically keep increasing the number of Spanish um, interpreter FTEs up till 10.5 FTEs with the cost decreasing. And if we were to keep adding FTEs, then that's where the cost will start to increase again. So very counterintuitive, but that, that's what we predicted. So that's for the Spanish interpreters. And we saw a very similar trend uh, relationship for the Mandarin interpreters as well. When we started the study, the organization had, um, I believe, 0 0.4 FTEs for Mandarin interpreters. And we see that 
they could technically keep increasing to one FTE before the total cost for Mandarin um, interpreter FTEs start to increase. So what we did at that time was that we presented this um, uh, this work in a lot more details to the CFO at that time and the CFO's um, finance team. And then approval was made on the spot to hire additional FTEs. And we followed the trend for the cost, the disparities, and so on. Um, and we realized that a few months later, after the additional FTEs were trained, the actual uh, cost savings actually exceeded what we predicted because what we predicted were um, some conservative numbers, but the actual cost savings were higher than our prediction. So with this example, um, you know, we see that we could use multiple analytics methods to provide insights into things like staffing level. And sometimes, for example, in this case, it gave us a very counterintuitive perspective that increasing FTEs actually results in lower costs up to some optimal level. Um, so again, when I talk about optimal or best action earlier with prescriptive analytics, this is one of the contributions of prescriptive analytics. Um, and a lot of these analytics methods, if not all of those that I just talked about, were developed outside of healthcare, and they are used to they can be used to reduce gaps in um, outcomes disparities in this case and improve quality of care. So. I'm looking at the time. Um, I do not have time to go through all these, but I just want to really quickly go through some other selected examples. Again, some of these work are things that I did in my previous previous role, where we utilize engineering methods, modeling techniques to inform um, my past hospital about how to prepare our hospital for the COVID nineteen pandemic and how to what what do we need to do in order to recover from the pandemic. Um, a few years ago. Um, and then we also did ambulatory volume prediction because um, if you recall, a lot of the, when COVID first started, a lot of these talk about predictive models and volumes and so on were really for inpatients. However, ambulatory settings were um, hit by COVID as well. So um, we did volume prediction for that. We also did uh, inpatient length of stay prediction for the volume of uh, COVID-19 patients utilizing uh, different uh, methods. And the last one here, the NASA Advanced Life Support System, uh, is actually my dissertation topic where um, I use reinforcement learning, which is also a tool within that intersection of machine learning and AI um, to construct a life support system um, in order to support the crew members' uh, mission to Mars. So a very interesting uh, project, I think. Um, I don't have time to go through this, but there are actually a lot of parallels between this NASA project with healthcare, both in terms of operations management as well as clinical care. Um, so there's, there's a, a bunch of um, materials there as well. So um, in the last few minutes, I want to talk a little bit about the implications of using these type of models for decision making. So I've talked about how great these models are and how successful we have been at using them. But I do want to quote um, George Box, who is a famous statistician who said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And he's totally right about this. And one of the big reasons why that's right is because none of the models out there can capture all the intricacies and stochastics in real life. And again, stochastics are the randomness, probabilities of things happening, and so on. So models can only capture um, what we make models capture, and we just can't make models to completely mimic real life in a 100% way. And because of that, due diligence is crucial um, in model development. So here are a few steps in terms of how we typically develop models. So when, we, when it comes to model developments, we always start with capturing some historical data, um, doing some data wrangling, cleaning the data, formatting the data, and so on. Um, and again, as I said earlier, these models are really garbage in, garbage out. So we really have to make sure that we are capturing the data the right way and so on. So once we're, we are fine with the, the data sets, then we get into the next phase, which is the model design. And in this model design phase, we really have to make sure that we're very clear what problem it is that we're trying to solve, what objective are we trying to accomplish, and design our model to really target those very specific problems or, or objectives. Um, I've seen way too many cases where models model design started before the objective was clear and the, the model just um, became useless at the end because it wasn't actually targeting the problem. So we have to really, we have to design this um, uh, very carefully. 
to make sure that the model is useful. The next phase is training the model. This is the, the part where we typically hear people say, oh, we will use 80% of our data to train the model. And then we use the remaining 20% of the data um, for, for doing model testing. Um, so this is where those activities happen. And then after we test the model, if we are happy with the performance of the model, then we move into the next phase of validating the model, meaning applying the model to prospective data to make sure that with new data coming in, the model is still performing at a satisfactory level. And if it doesn't, then it goes back to training the model, retesting, revalidating, and so on. And once the model is performing at the satisfactory level, then we move into implementing the model, which is really um, putting the model into workflow and using the model for decision making. So this is for model development. And I will say that um, when we use other people's model, we have to go through our due diligence as well. I think many of us um, on this call probably experience vendors coming to us and say, hey, we got this new product. Our new product has this, this new model. This new model can really predict readmission or heart failure or whatever it might be. And most of the time we say, okay, let's just implement it. But that is that should not be the case. We should, we should perform our due diligence, making sure that um, other people's models do apply to the use cases that we have um, in order for their models to be useful. So another example um, that I want to share here is that, um, again, um, in my previous role, we've done a research study using um, a risk model that Society of Thoracic Surgeons developed for predicting in-hospital mortality. And we decided to recalibrate the model to fit our patient population. And after we went through that recalibration exercise, what we found was that the STS model asked for 41 variables, meaning you have to input 41 numbers for the model to even work. But we were able to get it down to six variables, which means using the model suddenly becomes a lot easier. Um, and after we did that, we found that our model showed similar model discrimination as the original STS model, meaning our model is as good as their model in terms of filtering out patients who would, might get heart, heart uh, 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 mortality versus patients who might not have mortality. And also our model had improved model calibration, meaning it's actually more accurate than the SDS model. So we definitely have to go through the due diligence, whether it's developing our own model or implementing um, other people's models for all these reasons. So in conclusion, um, I just want to reiterate that um, we've gone through four uh, different types of analytics today, um, and each type of them is important in their own way, and they are descriptive, diagnostic, predictive, and prescriptive analytics. And a lot of these analytics approaches are developed in other industries, and they can be adapted to healthcare with some um, careful um, tweaking or recalibration and so on. And um, these advanced analytic analytics models require a very disciplined approach for us to develop and also um, to adopt in order for them to be useful. And with that, I would like to thank you for your attention and I'm open to any questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Cham. That was wonderful, a wonderful and very helpful overview. Um, good morning, everyone. This is Anna Marie Bullier. I am filling in for Dr. Salazar, who had to um, travel to a uh, meeting off-site. So, Dr. Cham, we do have some questions for you. The first one is um, from Dr. Zalneritis. Have you done an analysis of these methods to demonstrate the investment in generating its data and predictive predictives are of value to the organization, patients and families, or faculty and learners? Um, so I would say the short answer is no, we have done, we have not done a, an analysis to um, really understand the value of investments of doing that. However, I will say that um, I, I mentioned earlier in this presentation where we are currently creating an analytics um, strategy, which is a five-year vision um, for the organization. And then we are really hoping for that vision to come true. And we have put together some milestones and also some teams in order to accomplish that vision. So um, that vision was really developed through an analytics retreat that we held um, last fall. 
and there were representatives from different functional areas, um, different departments, and so on. So we're hoping that you know that vision has captured a lot of what people are looking for in terms of the organization's analytics work. And uh, you know, we would love to socialize that vision to anybody on this call who's interested to help us figure out you know what exactly what else do we need to put into that vision in order for us to accomplish the goals of um, of the organization. But uh, to answer your question, we did not do an in-depth um, analysis that way, but we do have plans to, um, you know, to, to execute that analytics vision that was put together by a, a team of over 30 people from representing different departments. Excellent, thank you so much. And there is a request um, for us to share your slides. So we will make sure that those are available on our website. Um, sure. Dr. Holm asks, um, as Connecticut Children, um, Connecticut Children's has been growing in volume in many divisions with the expansion to different parts of the state and beyond. Can these models be used to predict if the beds we will have within the new tower, when the new tower comes online, uh, will be adequate, um, particularly in the NICU and, the, and our PICU beds? So absolutely. So in order to make that kind of prediction, um, so these models are one one group, one set of tools that can help us with that kind of prediction. I will say that in order for us to make accurate predictions of that um, of, of those populations, there are other expert knowledge that needs to serve as input into the models as well. For example, you know how do the populations change in our catchment area? Um, do we need to take into consideration? the 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 long-term uh changes in people's health and and all that so as long as we're able to quantify those changes we could use those quantification to put them through um, a model that we could build in order for us to make the prediction that way so you know the short answer is yes um the long answer is we'll have to figure out how to quantify those those different changes in the uh in, in our catchment areas in terms of people's health um, and also potentially um, migration rates and fertility rates and all that kind of stuff. Yes, thank you very much. Um, Dr. Michael O asks, um, first, thanks you for an outstanding talk. Um, he wrote, because RSV peaked early this year and children are now relatively more immune than expected, the prediction that there will be a surge in February, which is usually related to RSV, may not be accurate. Is it theoretically possible to create models that can be modified with biological factors, such as prevalent immunity, vaccine effects, and community interventions? Absolutely. And that's a great question. And that's something that personally, I would love to take our modeling to that to that area. Um, so when I talk about that ED prediction, um, recall that I was really looking at a time series kind of prediction, meaning all these changes in volumes um, are a function of time. So what what the, the um the question was, was that how can we take into consideration all of these other variables? And I would throw another one in there as well, people's behavior. So, so all these different things can impact those volumes. And there's actually um, a class of um, simulation modeling technique out there called agents-based simulation. So agents-based simulation basically is set up to do that kind of thing where we can have different parameters that mimic different things. For example, um, uh, vaccination rates, again, people's behavior. And then when you have somebody with certain infectious disease coming in contact with another person, without the infectious disease, what is the rate of transmission, um, and, and so on and so forth. So we could have all these different variables built into a model, run the model, and then make predictions that way. So it's completely doable. It's, it's just a matter of resources of putting that together. Uh, thank you so much. And I, I will tell you, the questions are continuing to roll in. So I will ask one last question, and then we will make these um, available to you, Dr. Chem, so you can answer them, and we'll post those answers online. Yep. Um, the last question is from Dr. Uh, Ching Lao, who thanks you for the informative talk. Uh, he asks, how dependent is such an analysis on the sample size? Do we mm -hmm. need to do joint analysis with multiple hospitals to expand the sample size? On yeah. the other hand, how sensitive is the analysis to the local variations if we do joint analysis. I'm sorry, variations. Yes. If we do sure. joint analysis. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you. That that's a that's a great question. So um it, it really depends on what it is that we are trying to predict. So say for example, if we're looking at you know how many beds do we need um, for a hospital for this winter, then you know I would say that the amount of data that we have is is um sufficient to do that kind of analysis. The the part about joint um sample with other hospitals comes into play 
um, when we're looking at things a little bit differently. So if let's say there's another hospital down the street who is that is able to take on a large number of patients, um, or if we think that some hospital is potentially might send us patients, then we need to take into consideration their ability um, of optimizing their beds, their beds and how many patients they might be sending to us. So we'll need data that way. So that's one example. Another example, um, which maybe is a little bit more clinical, is that if we're predicting, uh, let's say, um, heart failure or the spread of cancer cells or, or something of that sort, then um, yes, very likely we will run into situations where we don't have enough uh, of a sample size to really be able to craft that kind of models, especially if we're talking about AI and, and machine learning models, because those models do require a lot of data in order for them to be um, accurate enough to be useful. So for those cases, then I will say absolutely, yes, we do need some joint um, samples with other hospitals in order to really grow that, um, you know, the sample size for, for those, those methods to be applicable. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you, everyone. Again, we will make sure everyone's uh, questions are answered. Um, we want to thank Dr. Chem for a wonderful, wonderful lecture this morning. And we look forward to learning more from you um, in the months and, and years ahead, certainly, as we continue to grow and evolve as an institution across the region. So with that, thank you, everyone, for joining us this morning. Just a reminder that we do have um, an Ask the Experts this uh, Friday morning. Dr. Dina Atkins will be joining us from Duke to talk about gender affirming care. Um, wishing you all a very uh, a good day and wonderful week, and we'll see you on Friday. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Grand Rounds. For the most recent updates, please consider subscribing or find us on our Facebook group, Connecticut Children's Continuing Medical Education, or online at connecticutchildrens.org slash podcast slash grand dash rounds.